All right, um, next up, uh, we're going to jump into the Word, and um, I just wanted to um, kind of set the stage for you guys. Um, some of you guys know Daniel Parks. Daniel Parks is a beloved friend of mine. Um, I've known Daniel for, I would say, 10 years now. Um, the first time I met Daniel was out at the abortion center, and he was um, interceding on behalf of children and declaring that there's a hope in the gospel. And um, that day, Daniel put my wife on the microphone who speaks in Espanol, and she started speaking tongues in Espanol. And God used my wife that day to save a baby, and um, since then, our trajectories and paths have since crossed. Um, we work together at Love Life. Daniel is the, now the national director of uh, Sidewalk Ministry. Uh, he also serves as the West Coast Regional Shepherd um, helping oversee all the amazing work that's going on in California, Boise, Washington State, and other areas over there. Um, I just want to honor Daniel and Courtney. Um, if you guys would, I know you didn't probably expect this, but you guys just stand up real quick. Courtney, you too. This is Daniel's wife, Courtney. If we could just give them a round of applause. Um, some of you guys know how hard it is to do this kind of work. Um, but they've been doing it for a long time, 2005-ish, right? It's almost 20 years. Um, we joke all the time that Daniel didn't always have this beautiful head of gray hair, but that ever since he got out there, he's just, Courtney's shaking her head. It, like overnight, he just got this full head of grace. Um, and this work's stressful. This work's hard. And God has uniquely anointed Daniel for it. And we know that apart from having a good wife and a supportive family, that he would be operating halfway or a quarter of the way. And so we honor you, Courtney, and the Parks, the whole Parks family. Uh, Daniel has eight children, and most of them are here. So we thank you guys for bolstering our church attendance today. Yeah, we were, we were the numbers were running a little low, so we got you guys in the Wilson squad come in and getting us up up in numbers. But, but honestly, I love Daniel. Um, I will tell you that um, Daniel and I will frequently uh, disagree about secondary issues um, as it pertains to, you know, gifts of the Spirit and order salutis and all these things. But I would gladly and willingly um, stand shoulder to shoulder with Daniel in this fight to advance the kingdom. And I believe he is one of the most humble and loving brothers that I've ever met in my entire walk of Christianity. And um, even to the point where I was talking to him about us going through First John, and he's, he's like sharing his thoughts on it. It was edifying me. He's a man who knows scriptures. And uh, I was like, man, would you be willing to come share a portion of what you were explaining to me through First John 3? And he agreed. And so um, thank you, Daniel. Um, I pray that we all be blessed uh, through his time and that even beyond Daniel being here, uh, that you would continue to pray Courtney. Um, because if you didn't know, California is, um, they call it the left coast. Um, it's, it's, Gavin Newsom is, is, you know, going hard to try to make uh, California an abortion sanctuary, um, using government money to fund abortions and, and make, putting billboards up and, even using scripture on billboards to tell people that loving your neighbor is basically murdering your children. And um, we, we absolutely disagree with that statement. 
And so Daniel and Courtney are, are running uh, full steam, head down, head first into this battle with our friends in California. And God, by God's grace, he's been using them and their family um, to do amazing things. So please keep, keep them in your prayer. And uh, Daniel, come on up, brother. Right, praise the Lord. Appreciate you guys allowing me to come and open up God's Word with you. How much time do I have, Brian? Two hours. Two hours. Cool. We can do it in two hours, I think. Maybe we can do it in an hour and forty-five minutes. What do you think? I shouldn't require much time. Um, I think I shared with you, Brian, as you were talking about First John. Um, that First John was probably probably my second second favorite book of the Bible, actually. Um, next to Hebrews, Hebrews is an amazing book. Maybe maybe it's Hebrews, Romans, and First John. But either way, I've studied First John a lot, dug into First John some years past, and uh, God taught me a lot from this little epistle. Um, however, I will say that Brian gave me. Um, one of the most difficult passages in First John to preach, um, and so we're going to try to get into this today and learn something from it. Before we jump into it, though, we're going to be in First John chapter three, verses four through ten. I do want to apologize to you guys. I know that that primarily um, you guys use the ESV. I'm going to be reading out of the New King James Bible because if it ain't 1982 New King James Bible. Where I come from, I'm just kidding. I just like the New King James. When I started out, first got born again, um, I read the New Living Translation. And, it, you know, it's a paraphrase and whatever. People knock the New Living Translation. God taught me a lot of stuff out of the New Living Translation. Any Bible is better than no Bible, right? And then I, as things progressed, I, I started just liking the New King James Version, like the flow of things. So I'll be reading out of that, but it's not going to change if you're reading the ESV, the essence of what I'm going to be saying. But before we get into these passages of Scripture... I want to give a little background. I'm pretty sure you guys have already talked about this. If you've been preaching through the first couple of chapters of 1 John, you've probably already touched on some of the background. But I think it's helpful for us, if you haven't touched on that, or if you already have, just to jog our memory of why John wrote 1 John. First and foremost, it, he never identifies himself in this book. He never says, I, John, am writing this to this particular church. He doesn't identify himself, and he doesn't identify the church that he's writing to. But we have a, a high amount of certainty that John wrote this, right? There's, there's, there's no doubt that John, the apostle of Jesus, wrote this epistle. And it's highly probable that he wrote it to the church in Ephesus primarily and for it to be circulated through um, all of the churches there. As you dig into this book, though, and as you look at what John is confronting, you see right away John is confronting. He's not just writing to affirm some Christians and some Christian doctrine. He's writing to refute some false teaching. He's writing to affirm the church and the people for sure. But he's writing to affirm them in light of some false teaching that's taking place, likely in Ephesus and in other areas. And it's helpful for us to understand that, and I think it's helpful for us to understand the heresy in particular that John is coming against. 
And as you study this and dig into this, and as you read between the lines of some of the stuff that John is talking about, you'll see there's a lot of contrast. He talks about light and darkness a lot throughout this book. He talks about other things. He talks about the Christ and the Antichrist. He talks about this difference between those who've departed from the church and those who've remained. So there's kind of this dualistic nature to what John is talking about. And the reason why he's, he's doing that and breaking it down kind of a dualistic way is he's actually refuting a dualistic heresy. So he's kind of like doing some irony here. And uh, the heresy in particular that John is refuting, I believe, in this book is Gnostic heresy. It's a Gnostic heresy that in essence taught this kind of dualistic nature of man and the world. And this Gnostic heresy, what I mean by dualism is they taught that kind of everything is, is separated in two categories. You have the natural or the material world, and then you have the spiritual world. And these Gnostic heretics, um, many of them taught that Jesus, yeah, Jesus was actually a teacher. They even taught some of them that Jesus was actually God or a divine being. They gave a lot of homage to Jesus and, and actually adapted some of the old Gnosticism and some of the old uh, her, heretical practices into Christianity. This is not, listen, there's nothing new under the sun, guys, all right? So these guys are just rehashing old heresies and old lies that the devil's always told. And they, they adapted it to Christianity. And so they would teach things like, Yes, Jesus was divine, but since the material world is evil, and that's in essence what they taught, there's a material world and the spiritual world. The material world is evil in its very essence and intrinsically evil, unredeemable. The spiritual world is good. In its essence, it's good, right? And so because Jesus was good and he was a good teacher and he was a prophet or he was divine, there's no way Jesus could have come in material flesh, and so many of them taught that Jesus was just like a spirit or a ghost, and he kind of appeared. They even taught weird things like when Jesus walked, he didn't leave footprints. And that's the heresy. You see it right away in the first chapter of John where he talks about that which we have handled with our hands, right? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. That's why he, that's why he says that specifically, because Jesus came as a man, Jesus, we, we believe, right, that Jesus was the God-man, fully God and fully man. These Gnostic heretics didn't believe that. They believed that Jesus was just a spirit. This, this heresy manifests itself practically in a couple of different ways. So you had these Gnostic heretics that believed the material world was evil and the spiritual world was good. And so you had some, and this is often what happens with heresies, people take one extreme or the other. Okay, And so you had those that said, yes, the material world is evil, and only the spiritual world is good, and so we're, we have a spirit, and so our spirit's good, but our physical body is bad, and so they abuse their bodies. They whip themselves, and they beat their bodies, and they treated their bodies um, unlike we should, even fasting to the point of being emaciated, because the material was bad, and we need to put it in subjection. And so they went that, that way. And then there were those, and I believe these are the ones that John in particular is refuting, that believe, well, because the material world is bad, our physical bodies are intrinsically bad and irredeemable, it doesn't really matter what we do with our physical bodies. It doesn't really matter if we are gluttons or drunkards or involved in sexual immorality. It doesn't really matter what we do with our body because after all, 
and you, you guys have probably even said this, and there's a little bit of truth to it, this is just an earth suit, right? This is just an earth suit, and it's really what our, our spirit is really what matters. And you know, every, every lie has a little bit of truth in it. Yeah, this is an earth suit. Yeah, this is a, a temporary body, but you know that God is gonna actually resurrect your body and give you a glorified version of this same body? But these Gnostics, they taught, well, this body doesn't really matter. And so they're involved in all kinds of wickedness and all kinds of sin. And so John refutes that right away. You know, he talks about it in the first chapter, about walking in darkness. If you walk in darkness and claim to walk with God, you lie, and you're not practicing the truth. And really what he's getting down to, we're going to talk about today um, a very important subject really what John is going after. And I'm going to use, just to warn you guys, if you have sensitive ears today, I'm going to use the S word a lot in this sermon. Is that all right? Brian's a little uneasy. I'm going to use the S word. No, the word is sin. I'm going to use the word sin a lot because John uses the word sin a lot in the passages we're going to be looking at. You're a little uneasy. Brian's like, oh man, what did I invite this guy for? Now we're going to talk about sin. And I'll say this, sin is something that the modern church has abandoned as a subject. We've not dealt with the issue of sin, and I'll say this, and this is very important, not, not you guys, right? You guys, you preach the gospel, you preach the righteousness of Jesus, the need to repent of sin and put your trust in Jesus. But I'll say this, as the church of Jesus Christ, if we don't talk about sin, we're not talking about the main issue of separation between God and man. You see, the Gnostics taught that you could attain salvation through some kind of secret knowledge, some secret passwords, some kind of secret like way of initiation to get into this secret club, this Gnostic. Gnostic, actually, the root word for Gnosticism or Gnostic is Gnosis, which is knowledge. So if you had this secret knowledge, you could attain salvation. Don't really worry about repentance of sin and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. It's this secret knowledge that kind of got you in. But the Bible throughout, and especially throughout the New Testament, Jesus deals himself with the subject of sin, right? Jesus' first message was repent. Repent of what? Repent of sin. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so if we're going to preach the gospel, we have to deal with the subject of sin. And certainly John does in this epistle. Now, of course, as I said earlier, there's nothing new under the sun this heretical mindset has permeated the church, and maybe in a lot of you, maybe permeated your minds or people that you've encountered. I encounter this Gnostic heresy all the time in ministry. Brian mentioned the ministry at the abortion center. And I encounter a, a manifestation of this Gnostic heresy on a regular basis, this idea that the material world, our bodies, what we do with our bodies, and all the activities that we doesn't matter as long as our spirit is right. And so I have people say something to the effect of, well, I asked Jesus into my heart so he doesn't really care about the things that I do with my life. You know, I said the sinner's prayer, therefore God doesn't really care about how I live. I encounter people at the abortion center that are about to take the lives of their babies that say something to the effect of, well, God knows my heart. What are they saying? There's this kind of dualistic nature to the way God views man. That, that, that somehow your activities and what you do with your body is separated from your spirit. After all, God knows my heart, therefore I'm good. And that is actually a manifestation, a modern manifestation of this Gnostic heresy. And so that's a little bit of an introduction 
to a message on the subject of sin that I want to call Sinless Perfection in Four Easy Steps to Attain It. Does that sound good? No. Actually, some do teach. Um, people that I respect um, in this chapter, chapter three, sinless perfection, that somehow we could attain to this sinless perfection and we can get to a point where we never sin again. But I do not believe, listen, I wish that were true, okay? I wish I could get to a point where I would never sin again, where my thoughts and intentions were always pure and always right before God. I would like to be wrong about that, but I do believe that as believers and Of course, John deals with this in that first and second chapter. He says, if we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I will say this, sin is the exception and not the rule. And that's really the point here. John's not going after sinless perfection. He's not telling you you need to be sinless and perfect in order for you to be a real Christian. But what he's going after is that our hearts are are pressing in toward righteousness and holiness and honoring and pleasing Jesus. That's the heart of the Apostle John here. In contrast to these Gnostic heretics that thought that you could just have some secret knowledge. As long as you had some secret knowledge and some spark and some light in your mind, you're, you're good, you can do what you want. He's contrasting that with the reality of the gospel, which is repentance towards sin and faith towards the Lord Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul preached. That's what the Apostles preached. And so if we could, let's stand just briefly... And we're going to read these passages. I actually didn't bring my bottle of water up. Thank you, sister. So I think we have it there. It's a little small. Can everybody see that pretty good? So this is the New King James Version, I believe. Did we get the New King James Version? We didn't? Okay, this ESV, that's fine. So it says... Whoever commits sin, this is 1 John chapter 3. Do y'all normally read it together? Is that how y'all do it? I think I got a... Okay, cool, cool. Well, we can, we can read it together. You guys can see it on the screen. So let's do it. So verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Amen. Praise God for his word. You can be seated. So the real message, or the real title of this message, is sin. The sins that people who don't know God commit, it matters to God matters so much that he sent his son to take away sin, as we talked about or just read about. But sin also matters in the life of the Christian, because we can kind of take this attitude of, well, we've been forgiven, we've checked the box, therefore how we live and what we do doesn't really matter. 
And that's one of the most dangerous traps that we can be in as a believer in Jesus, is that somehow sin doesn't matter. What we do with our body, what we think with our minds, what we speak with our mouths, somehow it doesn't matter because after all, it's all under the blood. And I'm gonna tell you, that's a trap. That's a trap. Sin does matter to God. What we do with our bodies, what we think with our minds, and what we speak with our mouths, it matters to the Lord. It matters for his glory, for the sake of his glory. It matters for the sake of our good. It matters for the sake of those around us, that what we do with our bodies, with our mouths, and with our minds honors the Lord Jesus. So we're going to jump into, I, have, I do have four points uh, that I'm going to touch on, and just kind of break this passage down a little bit for you guys and give you what I think the Lord would have us to get out of this passage. And so just looking at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, in this point, you know, John says in chapter 3 verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. We're talking about sin, so what is sin? John's reply is sin is lawlessness. And so the first point is sin is a disregard of God's law, if you're taking notes. Sin is a disregard of God's law. It's lawlessness. God has given us the moral law, the Ten Commandments, not as a restraint to hold us back from enjoying life, but kind of like guardrails on a mountain road. You ever driven through the mountains? You see those guardrails, and you can view those guardrails one of two ways. You can say, well, those guardrails, are, they're there to hold me back from enjoying life. Right? That's why they're there. The government, the state put those up so I couldn't, so I wouldn't be able to enjoy life. You can view it that way. Or you can view it as a safety in case I, I veer a little bit or swerve a little bit or, or fall asleep a little bit. At least it will save me from flying over the mountain, right? You can view the guardrail as a restraint and you can just bust right through that guardrail and you can enjoy a flight for about 20 seconds until you're in a heap of destruction at the bottom of the mountain, right? God's law is not intended to just be a restraint to keep us from enjoying life. And as believers, listen, the world views the law of God that way. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Listen, the thou shalt nots are good. <laughs> I tell my kids, thou shalt not play in traffic, okay? It's good. It's not to keep them from enjoying life. It's so they don't find themselves in a heap of destruction, right? God's law is good. And so we're going to look just briefly at the law of God found in Exodus chapter 20. As it says in this book, in 1 John, that sin is a violation of law, some versions say, or sin is a transgression of the law, or as we looked at, sin is a disregard for God's law and God's rulership. Let's look at Exodus chapter 20. This is the, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. I'm just going to go through these real quick, and we need to examine our hearts with these things, right? The Bible says that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. But it also says that the law is a schoolmaster leading us to Christ. The intention of the law of God is not so that we can check the boxes and, yeah, I'm good. It's to show us that we need a Savior. But it's also to keep us from destruction. It's to bring conviction on the conscience so that we'll do what God says is right and what God says is good. And so the first of God's commandments are, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. The first of God's moral law, when John says it's lawlessness, it's a disregard for this law. That I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Are we, are we holding things in our lives as more important than God? Are we dedicating our time and our energy and our talent 
our heart energy to things that are taking the place of God. That's idolatry. God is supposed to be first. He's the one that gave us breath in our lungs. He gives us all the blessings that we enjoy, and he asks that we keep him first. And so we need to examine our hearts. Are we being lawless, or are we keeping God first? The second is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. The first and second command are tied together. The second command is idols, things that you fashion, things that you, a job even, a relationship, a career that you're focused on, that you idolize that thing, that you give your sacrifices to that thing. The Bible says no covetous man who's an idolater has any part of the kingdom of Christ and of God. We can't be involved in idolatry, worshiping things that are the creature rather than the creator. The third command is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And it goes on to say, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. What does it mean to take the name of God in vain? Well, we, we certainly see it all day long in movies that we watch and that we're entertained by. God's name is taken in vain. God's name is used as a cuss word. Do you ever wonder why people use God's name or the name of Jesus, but you never see someone smash their thumb with a hammer and say, oh, Muhammad, right? You never see someone smash their thumb with a hammer and say, oh, devil, or, or stub their toe, right? Why do they use the name of God, the name of Jesus, to blaspheme the name of God? They recognize there's some power in that name. And to take that name lightly and bring that name low somehow gives them some power. But listen, as believers in Jesus, we should not be involved in taking the name of God in vain. But listen, it's not just using God's name as a cuss word. It's also applying the name of God to your life. I'm a Christian and yet living like a devil. That's taking the name of God in vain. He's telling the children of Israel, you're supposed to honor me and apply my name, my covenant name, not in vain, but to show the nations around you that there's something different about you and something different about me. I'm a holy God, so don't take my name in vain. The next, the fourth command is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now, we can get into all the arguments of this doesn't carry over into the new covenant, and that's fine. I think the, the point here in this passage is actually that God is a father and he wants to spend time with his children. We need to set aside time for the Lord, right? The next uh, command, the fifth command, remember John says that sin is lawlessness. It's a disregard for the law of God. The fifth command is honor your father and your mother, and it comes with a promise that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And so a blessing comes with the obedience to this command. And I'll simply say this, how can you honor God who you cannot see if you can't honor your parents who you can see? This is for you kids. This is for you older kids. It's a little difficult, especially when you come into manhood. You know, you're in between that kind of teenager manhood phase, and you start to get a little freedom there, and you start to disregard your parents and start to dishonor your parents because you want that freedom. Listen, that dishonors Jesus. That's lawlessness. We need to honor our parents. We need to honor God by honoring our parents. And listen, I want to tell you guys, God will honor you. If you honor your parents, you honor your father and your mother, there's a blessing that comes with this. The sixth command here is you shall not murder. That's a pretty easy one not to violate, right? Well, actually, Jesus took it a step further and said, if you hate your brother, you commit murder in your heart. To go around and, and hate your brother by the way that you speak about him or her. The actions that you take for or against them can be murder in your heart. 
And we don't want to have any part of that. We don't want to be lawless. We want to be people that say, yes, God, your law is right and it's good. And we want to abide by it. We want to honor you through not murdering our brothers in our hearts. Also, this manifests itself, as we talked about at the abortion centers that we have all across this nation. We see this commandment violated by the tens of thousands every week in the United States of America. Up to a million every year, precious little image bearers of God are murdered through this thing that we call health care. And it's a violation of the law of God. And we, as believers in Jesus, cannot be lawless and allow that to take place unanswered. We have to speak out against it, and we have to deter those who are going in to do this from doing it. In our families, we need to encourage people to embrace and honor the life of human beings. The seventh command, you should not commit adultery. That's sex outside of marriage and fornication. Those who are involved, and that's what these Gnostic heretics were involved in. There's a lot of sexual immorality that they just said was no problem with God. After all, our physical body doesn't matter to God, just our spirit. And so they were lawless in that way. But as believers in Jesus, are we lawless today? Are we taking what God puts weight on and putting weight on it ourselves? Or when we look with lust, are we just saying, well, that's, that's how men are. Men just have that propensity. Or, God forbid, look at pornography and somehow justify it because of whatever is going on in your life because you're tired or, or, or whatever the situation might be. Jesus said that if you look at a woman to lust after her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. That's adultery of the heart. Just like hatred is murder in the heart, adultery of the heart is looking with lust. And we shouldn't be lawless. We should uphold God's law and stay away from that stuff. Amen? The eighth command, you should not steal. That's taking things that don't belong to you. Let's not be lawless and take things that don't belong to us. Let's be intentional about the way, even when we borrow things from one another and we never give them back, that's it's actually a form of stealing. You ever, had that? you ever had someone borrow your favorite book and never give it back, Brian? Yeah, you've probably done it, haven't you? Yes, you need to repent. No, it's, it's serious, man. People, God, God is a God that honors property rights, okay? Property matters to God. God gives property to the children of Israel. You guys are in the, the CBR reading. You're reading about the conquest of um, Canaan, right? And God's giving property to certain tribes and stuff. God cares about that stuff. And to steal someone else's property is a violation of the eighth command. The ninth command, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. That's lying about people. These lawless uh, Gnostics thought this was no big deal. Just whatever you do with your tongue, with your mouth, is no big deal. It's, it, it matters to God. Sin matters to God. And if we're going to honor Jesus and live as God would have us to live, we ourselves can't be involved in lying, bearing false witness. We've got to uphold the truth of God's word. We've got to speak the truth. And then the final command, which is the 10th command, you shall not covet. That's desiring something so much that you're willing to steal, kill, or cheat to get it. And the Bible says that no covetous man, as I quoted earlier, who's an idolater, covetousness is tied into idolatry because we're desiring things so much that we're willing to violate our own conscience and violate God's word to get it. And that dishonors the Lord Jesus. And so, as believers in Jesus, we're called not to be lawless, amen? We're called to honor him with our lives. And that's what John is talking about. Let's jump back in to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 5 and 6 here. So first and foremost, sin is a disregard of God's law. My second point here in 1 John chapter 3 verses 5 through 6 is 
Sin separates us from God. What time should I be looking at on that clock, Brian, seriously? Okay. Because I, I forgot to keep track of when I started. Okay, cool. So the second point here is sin separates us from God. First John 3, 5 through 6. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Now, a little caveat here. If you're reading in your ESV, I think it breaks it down and says, he who continues in sin or he who practices sin. And that's the obvious connotation here, right? He's obviously not talking about if you sin one time, somehow, you know, you're not a Christian. You're not a true child of God. What he's talking about is a habitual lifestyle of sin. If you live in a habitual lifestyle of sin, what does it say? He was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin, does not continue in a habitual practice of sin. It's incompatible with the Christian life for us to live in habitual rebellion to God. Our heart's desire is to please the Lord. Our hunger, Jesus said, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Our desire is for righteousness. We want to please God. We realize what Jesus Christ did to pay the penalty of our sin. And we want to live a life that's pleasing to him. Not live lawlessly, but recognize that in our sin, we can be separated from God. And so these Gnostic heretics who claim to have some secret knowledge, these are the people, again, that John is refuting, claim to have this kind of mystical relationship with God. What John is saying right here, guys, is that your relationship with God is not some mystical, mysterious thing, right? It's born out in how you live. I've talked to people, and again, thousands of people over the years. Ask them if you love Jesus. Yeah, I love Jesus. Do you ever read your Bible? Do you go to church? Do you ever spend time with other Christians? No, no, no. What does that tell me? That'd be like talking to a, a baseball player, you like baseball, and asking, well, do you, ever, do you ever go to baseball practice? Do you ever attend baseball games? Well, I'm a baseball player, but I never attend practice. I never go to baseball games. I never even read the baseball, what do they call it, the, the plan of action or whatever, the game plan, whatever. Rule book. I've never read the rule book either. You can, you can pretty much surmise that person's not really a baseball player. What we do with our bodies does matter to the Lord. And these Gnostic heretics, again, they said this is just some mystical thing, some secret knowledge. I remember uh, some years back, actually when I first got saved, 2001, so maybe it was late, late in 2001, I was just getting into sharing the gospel with people and realizing that in the South there's a lot of people that embrace that mentality. There's a lot of people that are saved. They, they said the prayer, but they live like devils. And I was talking to one young man. I was on a job site, and I was talking to this young man. Got into sharing the gospel, talking about sin and talking about our guilt before God. And uh, he, he, he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good with God. I've been going to church for a long time, raised in church. And I get into what God requires of us, his desire for us to live in a holy way. Because I noticed he was using some foul language and stuff. Like God wants us to live in a way that honors him. And uh, he began to share with me, um, as I was breaking down Galatians chapter 6, or chapter 5, verse 21, where it talks about the works of the flesh. 
And I was just looking through some of those works of the flesh with him. And he said, well, I'm also, I also drink on a regular basis. He gets drunk like every night. And I'm like, well, the Bible says here in Galatians chapter 21 that drunkards won't inherit the kingdom of God. So, like, what's going on with that? You're claiming to be a child of God, and yet you're a drunkard, and you're, you know, using foul language and taking God's name in vain. What's going on with that? He said, well, me and God have an understanding. Isn't that convenient? You ever heard that before? Me and God have an understanding. So that's pretty convenient that you and God have an understanding, and somehow that understanding suits your preferences, right? Well, let's be careful that we don't do that ourselves with the things that we're watching, with the things that we're involved, involving ourselves in, with the things that come out of our mouths, right? The way that we treat our wives and treat our husbands. Well, me and God have an understanding. After all, it's under the blood. Listen, as believers in Jesus, understand, as a believer in Jesus, sin can separate you from your God. Now, I'm not saying you lose your salvation when you sin, but what I'm saying is there is a measure of separation that takes place, and you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. You're driving in the car, driving down the road, some old lady pulls out in front of you, you slam on brakes, and your wife says, why are you driving so fast, right? And you snap back at her. It's like she's blaming me for something somebody else did, and then you snap back. You know, before that, you were having a nice conversation, enjoying each other. In that instance, what happened? You snapped at her, she snapped at you, then there's that cold silence that rests over the vehicle. You know what I'm talking about? You ever had that happen? You ever had that happen? I know I have. My wife, I had to, she graciously modified her behavior, but when there would be a deer, like we'd be driving down the road, there would be a deer in the peripheral, she would shriek. I'm like, what? I'm like, I don't know what the thing is. Like, you need to identify the problem. She just shrieks. And I'm like, it doesn't help anything. And of course, I snapped at her, and we ended up, by God's grace, talking about it later. But now she's like, deer, deer. She'll point to the deer, point it out. It's actually helpful rather than just shrieking. Uh, but we've dealt with that cold silence in the car before, haven't we? You know what I'm talking about? Well, you violate that relationship, and there's that cold silence. Some of you are wondering, maybe today, why God isn't using you like he used to. Maybe there's that cold silence in your relationship with the Lord. He still loves you. He still wants to use you. But you've not allowed the conviction of the Holy Spirit to settle in and acknowledge your sin and departure from what God has for you. Sin separates us from God. Turn real quick to uh, Matthew, the first chapter, the Gospel of Matthew. First chapter, verse 21, this is a story of Jesus' birth. And notice what it says in here. This is the prophecy about Jesus. This is um, when it was told to Mary what Jesus' name would be, and it's verse 21. It says, And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from hell. Is that what it says? He will save his people from bad ideas. No, it says, She shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to rescue from sin. He came to rescue us from the grip of sin in our life. He came to rescue us from the penalty of sin in eternity. 
He came to rescue us from that cold silence that you feel in your relationship with your wife, with your husband, and in your relationship with the Lord. You wonder sometimes why the heavens are brass, why it doesn't feel like your prayers are reaching heaven, why it feels like God somehow is cold. Maybe it's because you've gone cold to him. Listen, this relationship thing that we have with God is a real relationship. Now, I'm not going to go as far as to say that our sin hurts God because I don't believe that. But it does grieve God. The Bible says that we shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit. You understand, God, if you're a child of God, is your father. And just like any father, when your child has violated that relationship, there's a degree of separation there. And so the warning here is that sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59, verse 2, you guys probably well know this scripture, where God tells the children of Israel through the prophet Isaiah that your iniquities have separated you from me. As a matter of fact, let's just jump into that. Isaiah 59, verse 2, it says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he will not hear. Sin brings separation. Sin brings death. Sin matters to God. God cares about sin, so much so that he sent his son to remove it, as this passage says. Let's jump back into 1 John chapter 3 and look at these verses 7 through 8. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Listen, there was, there was an issue here in the church that John is dealing with. Again, we talked about that Gnostic heresy. That Gnostic heresy had permeated the church and had led to a point where many of these believers, it seems, were doubting their own salvation. After all, they didn't have the secret knowledge that these Gnostic heretics had. They didn't have the knowledge that these people had, so therefore, maybe they weren't saved. And so John has to affirm them in their salvation and in the fact that they were children of God. He goes on in uh, chapter 5, I forget exactly the verse, where he says, that I write you these things that you might know that you have eternal life. But these heretics have brought in some doubt. Maybe they're right. Maybe what they're teaching is correct, and we're somehow missing out on salvation and a true relationship with Jesus because we don't have the secret knowledge that they have. And John is saying no. Verse 7, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. It's not mystical. It's not mysterious. He who practices righteousness is righteous. And Jesus said it this way, you'll know a tree by its fruit. Listen, you don't have to be in doubt. Today, John wrote this so that we might know that we have eternal life. If you want to examine your heart, if you're in doubt of your salvation, whether or not you truly know God, look at this little book. It's just five chapters. Examine your heart in light of this. Are you living a life of lawlessness? Disregarding God's law, his, his law somehow doesn't matter? That you, because you have some secret knowledge, you've said some kind of initiation prayer, that somehow you're right with God, but you're living in rebellion to him? No, it says here, he who practices righteousness is righteous. Again, we're not talking about stumbling into sin. What we're talking about is those who dive headlong into sin and revel in it. Those are the people who practice unrighteousness who John says are not righteous. And so you don't have to be in doubt of whether or not you're right with God. Just look at your life. Is the pattern of your life one that is pleasing to God or is it one that's in rebellion to God? That's the question. And that's what John is dealing with right here. Is your heart's purpose to please Jesus? Do you acknowledge his sacrifice that it's so valuable what Jesus Christ did on the cross that even though you might stumble, you're going to get back up and you're going to stand before him and say, God, I repent and I'm sorry. 
And so sin brings separation. And the, second, the third point, sorry, is sin aligns us with the devil. He goes in these verses, in verse 8, he says, He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Amen? Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. To, to trample underfoot the power of the enemy. But when we live in sin and rebellion to God, and what John is in essence saying here is that these heretics, these people that think they have some mystical knowledge that brings salvation, they're actually aligned themselves with the devil. And what do we know about the devil? Well, the devil is the original rebel. We kind of uh, idolize in our society rebellion and being a rebel, right? We all love Star Wars and we like the rebels, right? We're fighting for the rebels against the empire and all that. Um, but actually, the Bible is, is not for rebellion, actually. Rebellion is a bad thing, in case you didn't know. But the devil is the original re rebel, isn't he? As he rebels against the rule of God, disregarding the rulership of God, the majesty of God. John 8, verse 44, this is the gospel of John. Chapter 8, and verse 44, it talks about the devil and his nature. And it says here again in verse 44, He's talking to the Pharisees. Let's make sure we're not aligned with the Pharisees and with the devil himself. And he says, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Listen, when we lie, when we rebel against God, when we say God's word and God's law doesn't matter, sin doesn't matter, but the Bible actually says it does, we're aligning ourselves with the enemy of God. The Bible says that men are separated from God through our sin and rebellion to God. That the pattern of sin and a life of disobedience to God aligns us with the prince of the power of the air, with the original rebel, the devil. And so as believers in Jesus, we can't live like rebels. We have to live according to God's word, according to what God has commanded for us to do. Let's jump into the final verses here in 1 John, in chapter 3. This is verses 9 through 10. Let's just backtrack just a second. Understand this. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The final point here is, in these last two verses, is that Christians do not have to live in bondage to sin. This idea... And this notion, and there's, again, there's always some truth in the things that we say, and I understand why we say it. But this notion that we all sin every day in thought, word, and deed a thousand times a day, that notion itself has been a trap for us to justify our sin and our failings. That may be true. You might sin every day in thought, word, and deed a thousand times. But I'm telling you, the Bible says you don't have to sin every day in thought, word, and deed. Okay? God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, can give you the ability, the grace. Now, I'm going to tell you, it's not about striving. It's not about trying real hard. It's not about getting a game plan together so you can try not to sin. Let me try really hard not to sin every day. No, the Bible doesn't call us to be sin-focused. It calls us to be Christ-focused. But when we're Christ-focused, our sin becomes less and less appealing, and we stop doing it. Now, again, John's not talking about sinless perfection. 
He's not talking about some point in your life where you've checked a box and you've achieved sinless perfection. I don't think that there's a time until we stand before God and he gives us that glorified body that sin is no longer a thing in our lives, right? But the reality is we should be walking away from sin and not towards sin. That as believers in Jesus, we do not have to live in bondage to sin. If you were in the past involved in pornography, if you were a liar, if you were a thief, listen, I was a drug addict, a liar, a thief, a fornicator. Those are the things that I was involved in. The Bible says those that practice those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When God rescued and saved me, those things, the Bible says, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what happened in my life, and that's what happened in your life. If you're a believer in Jesus, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Let's not allow the world to tell us because of its inability to obey God and its unwillingness to obey God that somehow we would be self-righteous to say that we can live a life in obedience to God. I want to tell you, you can live a life with a pattern of obedience to the Lord. You don't have to live under bondage to sin. And so let's read these verses in verse 9 and 10. It says, whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother. There's some practical stuff here, but again, that point remains that to live in rebellion and to embrace sin as a regular practice in our lives and to say that that's okay with God is aligning ourselves with the devil. And John will have none of it. He breaks it down again and says, children, the children of God and the children of uh, the devil are manifest. It's evident who they are because those who live aligned with the devil don't practice righteousness. They practice sin and wickedness. But notice this in verse 9, and this is a powerful truth, guys. I hope I'm not putting you to sleep. This is a powerful truth in verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Remember, what he's saying here, he's not saying doesn't ever commit sin. He's saying doesn't practice or doesn't live in or doesn't abide in or doesn't have as their regular practice in life a lifestyle of sin. Whoever's been born of God does not live a lifestyle of sin. Listen to this, for his seed remains in him. What does that mean? His seed remains in him. I don't want to get too graphic, but that word seed is actually the word sperma. You guys can kind of use your imaginations to know what he's saying there. What is he saying? He's saying if you're born of God, you've been impregnated with the life of God. Do you understand that if you've been born of God, you have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you? The Bible says the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives inside of us. That's an amazing truth. And so for us to kind of live under it and say, well, we all sin in every day in thought, word, and deed, and so I'm kind of just always going to be like that. After all, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Listen, the reality is the Bible says that you are a saint in the light if you're a child of God. And that the pattern of your life can be one of righteousness, one of obedience to God. But again, it's not by your own strength and by your own wisdom. What is it by? It's by the grace of God. I think in a sense, and I'll I'll wrap up with this. I don't know, what are we we doing just after this? We're going to do Lord's Supper. Okay, that'd be great. In the life of a believer, we have been given um, some of these great and precious promises, exceeding great and precious promises, the Bible says. 
And these truths that the word of God gives us are, are so deep like the word grace. I think in one sense we've cheapened the word grace by having it apply only to salvation. And somehow grace brings us into salvation, but that's kind of where it stops. And so we cheapen it in a sense. It's an important aspect of grace, surely, is to bring us into salvation. But we've cheapened it in a sense and said that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. But I want you to understand that according to the scripture, the grace of God is at work in the believer after you're saved. After Jesus Christ is acknowledged as Lord and you bow your knee to him. The grace of God is not just God's riches at Christ's expense or unmerited favor, but the grace of God is actually the empowerment of God in you to do what you cannot do otherwise. God wants to give you grace to overcome these besetting sins. And I want to say to any men, this is, this is an epidemic in our society, let me tell you. It has destroyed families, dis, dismantled wonderful men of God and ministries and, and families and dis, decimated families, and that's the issue of pornography. Looking at things that dishonor Jesus, looking at perversion, that's what it is. Simply put, if you're looking at pornography, you're involved in perversion. It is, is perversion, what does that make you? A pervert. That's perversion. And it's destroyed and decimated families. And I'm telling you, it's ravaged the church. It's ravaged the church. And so what I want us to do, maybe if we could just stand for a second. Is that good? And so we see in what John has given us, that his seed remains in us. That if we're born of God, that the life of God has been impregnated into us. God has given us his Holy Spirit. The spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives inside of you. Therefore, the grace of God that saved you, that brought you from darkness into his marvelous light, that same grace is at work in you today to obey God, to live in obedience to God, to honor your father and your mother to resist the temptation to go on the internet and go on your phone and look at things in darkness that you ought not be looking at, to resist the temptation to be, in an ungodly way, critical of your husband. You know, that stuff dishonors God as well. God's grace is at work in us. But how do we receive the grace of God? This is like the secret of all secrets. If you want to know some, some secret, mystical secret here, I'm going to give it to you, right? It's found in James chapter 4. It's actually no secret at all. How do you receive the grace of God? If you're struggling in sin right now, if you're struggling to overcome some besetting sin, it's a cycle in your life and you're worried, man, am I even right with God? How do you receive the grace of God? James chapter 4 tells us, and you can look at it, look at it later, but I'm going to quote it for you. It says, God resists the proud. The proud are those who say, this sin doesn't really matter to God. It's not a big deal. Or, I can handle this myself. I can get this. I can, I can, in my own strength, in my own wisdom, in my own striving, I can get over this sin. That's pride. The Bible says God resists the proud. But what does it say? He gives grace to the humble. You want the grace of God? One simple way to receive the grace of God. Humility. It goes on to say, therefore, so God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. It's an amazing promise. So what does that mean? To receive the grace of God, we humble ourselves. What is humility? It's submission to God. It's agreeing, God, you're right and I'm wrong. 
My sin's offensive to you and I can't justify it. One of the worst traps we can get into as believers is to justify our sin and say it doesn't matter to God. Listen, sin matters to God. So much so that he sent Jesus to this earth to take care of the problem with sin. So whereas John is not talking about walking in sinless perfection, what is he talking about? He's talking about walking in the light. If you go back to John chapter one, let's just close our eyes just for a second before the Lord. He says here, keep your eyes closed, he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we're holding on to sins and we're unwilling to acknowledge those before God and we're claiming to have a, a secure walk with God, we're lying and not practicing the truth. If God's bringing something to your heart and your mind right now that you need to repent of, a cycle of sin in your life, something you keep going back like a dog to their vomit to. Acknowledge it before God. Submit to God. God, you're right and I'm wrong. In verse 7 in John, 1 John chapter 1, he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light is not walking in sin, sinless perfection, but it's holding out your sins and your failings before God and saying, God, I'm sorry. I've violated your law. I've violated your word. I've lived a life aligned with the devil. I've lived a life in rebellion to you, God. I've grieved your Holy Spirit by my life and by my lifestyle. And Lord, I bring it before you. I bring it to the light. And so, Lord, right now, as we're before you in prayer, there's anything in our hearts, Lord, that's displeasing to you. If there's anything that dishonors you, Lord, that grieves your heart, we bring it to the light right now. We bring it before you. We acknowledge, God, that what you say is right and good. And no matter what society says or no matter what we say, your word is true. And so, God, if we are dwelling and abiding in anything that's displeasing to you, God, we bring it before you right now. And I pray, as your word says, that you'll remove it. You'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we thank you again for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your Holy Spirit, that we can live in victory over sin and live a lifestyle that pleases you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.